How do you get help to islands that were nearly wiped off the map? The lead starts right now. One town was cut off for two days. Nearly every building has been destroyed. The destruction and humanitarian emergency coming into clear view with the death toll from Hurricane Dorian expected to explode. As President Trump melts down over a mat, hot spots around the world are heating up and now new CNN reporting that his two top national security officials are at war with each other. Plus, path to a massacre. New information today on the gun used in the Texas drive-by mass shooting. Was the firearm actually assembled for the killer and illegally sold to him? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the world lead today. Authorities in the Bahamas say they are expecting even more horrible news in the wake of Hurricane Dorian. Medical staff telling CNN as they treat the many wounded that they are dreading and bracing themselves to learn how many are dead. The storm killed at least 30 people by last official count. But given the overwhelming damage to the islands and the hundreds of people who remain missing, Bahamian officials believe the real death toll is, quote, unimaginable. New video today gives an example of Hurricane Dorian's forest. You're looking right now at a Hummer. That's around 6,000 pounds. The powerful floodwaters picked up that vehicle and slammed it through the side of a house. Dorian is currently off North Carolina's Outer Banks as a Category 1 hurricane, still flooding towns and knocking out power. But it is the Bahamas reeling from total disaster. The U.S. Coast Guard alone has rescued more than 200 people there. A helicopter crew described seeing the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas for the first time. The town was just leveled. It looked like a landfill. So all the houses were just leveled. It was trash everywhere. Have you ever seen that type of before? Never. CNN's Patrick Ottman reports for us now from the Bahamas, where he tells us he was struck by the silence and the destruction and the stench Reaching of death. Reaching hit areas of Grand Bahama Island means driving through still flooded streets. And streets that are no longer streets. This area in the east of the island has until now been inaccessible since the storm. Little to no help has arrived. The force of the hurricane threw cars through buildings. The storm stalled out here. Category 5, leveling whole towns. Many rode out the storm in their homes. Many did not survive. Pastor Joey Saunders was on the third floor of his home with his son when the storm surge crashed in. We started to make out to the second floor of the house and been about 10 minutes and it started to flow up to the third floor. You know, in the matter of it flew up to our head and we felt like, you know, this strong current trying to break loose everything, either cracks. And this was in the middle of the night. 1.30 in the morning and then the current was so strong then the roof started to lift and next thing I remember I was underneath the water I mean, my son standing and I noticed he had the searchlight and he was just he just disappeared with the searchlight and I heard him just you know, screaming daddy 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 he was in the water at that point he right he was already gone and minutes later when I came from underneath the water I threw my hand I caught onto the truss and the roof, the roof carried me away so we were like about 600 feet away from each other for about two days and we caught up into the pine tree, but 32 feet high. So, so the water carried you into a pine tree in the middle of the night. Yes. Your son was a ways away from you. Yes. What was going through your mind? You must have been terrified. Yes, I was hoping that he was alive, and he thought I had died also. 
It wasn't until the you know the two days later that we saw one another. He was under the trailer right there, and that's when we saw one another. You know. The Bahamian government has warned people the death count could spike. In places like High Rock, where everyone knows of dead or missing family and neighbors, that news is no surprise. Even though this is one of the hardest hit areas, help from the government is yet to arrive. I the government is on its way. You know, it's going to take a, t a better time to do other settlements, but they're doing their thing gradually, you know. Do you wish they were moving quicker? I, yes, I wish they could move a little quicker. People desperately need food and water before time runs out. A lot of people have lost most of their clothes, water, need food, you know, stuff like that. Basic stuff right now. And Jake, uh, we are in the town of High Rock. This is where Dorian as a Category 5 came in and stalled. These people had Category 5 wins for over 48 hours, they say. Behind me is one house that just had the front of it knocked in and was completely flooded. Believe it or not, this used to be a neighborhood. There was house after house after house. They were all gone. There were three people who were in this house, a mother, her daughter, and a granddaughter. The house was swept away into the ocean. No one knows where they are. They are officially listed as missing, but residents say they fear that most likely they were swept into the ocean and they will never be seen again. Throughout the day, we've seen helicopters, Coast Guard helicopters, hovering over spots in this area. Residents say that's how they know another body has been found. The grim work continues, and at this point, we're told by residents they don't expect for any more survivors to be found, Jake. Patrick Ottman, thanks so much for that story. CNN's Paula Newton uh, joins me now live from a different part of the islands. Uh, she's at an airfield in Nassau, which is now being used as a staging area for aid and rescue teams. And Paula, I mean, frankly, it could take years for the Bahamas to recover from this. Yeah, if ever. The Bahamas will be, for many decades, likely transformed by this. And the reason is that you are dealing with islands and keys that are isolated at times, spanning over several hundred miles. This is the deployment area, unfortunately, Jake, and not for lack of trying, but the aid effort has been, in fact, spotty and chaotic. You have that mix of both government and volunteer aid. And given, as I said, how widespread the needed the need is it is difficult to really ascertain if people are getting everything that they need and when we first start with the basics the food and the water then there's people who need to be evacuated and then as patrick just told you in very grim detail there is search and recovery and that search and recovery mission is also very important because it keeps away disease like cholera listen we're here in nassau this is also where they're bringing evacuees i spoke to elizabeth nixon i mean her story about even getting out of here was crazy they put the kids her nieces and nephews in coolers to get them out but after that they had to split up at the airport in marsh harbor what happened some of them came here those children with some relatives are still at the airport take a listen to elizabeth nixon those babies can't stay another minute because they haven't eaten last night they said they was in the in the airport and they didn't even eat are they at the airport right now? Yeah, they're in the front, but it's so chaotic. You know, if, if those little kids trying to push through, there's a lot. You know, the issue here is that she's saying it's frantic. That is not the way uh, on day six that you want to see all of this unfold. And she's desperate because she knows that those children have not eaten. She knows they do not have water. 
Jake, uh, listen, the challenge ahead, it, it is quite significant. All right, Paul, thank you so much for that reporting. Uh, let's go now to uh, Dr. Caroline Burnett Garraway. She's on the phone from the Bahamas. She's the medical chief of staff at Princess Margaret Hospital, which is the only hospital in Nassau still able to treat critical patients uh, in the entire Bahamas. Uh, doctor, thank you for, for joining us. First of all, how are you doing? How are you holding up? How is your family? Well, thank you, Jake. Um, my family is fine, um, and we're, we're all holding up. We, it's a great team effort. It's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. Um, it's emotionally traumatizing hearing some of the stories of our patients that come in, but we have to keep going. Your hospital's the only one taking critical patients right now uh, in, in Nassau. How strained are your resources? Well, we've, we've come together and, and deployed staff and reshuffled staff so that we're managing um, the initial wave of critical patients from Abaco has, has you know, they've come in, we've admitted them, taken them to the operating theater if necessary, and now the second wave of the walking wounded are coming in. Initially, they came by Coast Guard helicopters, and the airports are now open, so regular flights are bringing more patients in. But um, with, with very strict and tight triage, we're sorting the patients, sending them to either a public health clinic or the sicker ones have to come into this hospital. You told CNN that you're treating the wounded right now, but preparing uh, for the dead, uh, you believe that the death toll is, is much higher than 30, right? That's correct. How much higher do you think it might be? I, I, I can't estimate, but it's, it's going to be high. So we, we are preparing. Some people coming to you uh, have been trapped in their homes, in some cases on top of their homes for days on end. What kind of conditions are they in by the time they get to you? So dehydrated, exhausted, um, emotionally uh, exhausted, but um, some have metabolic abnormalities from the long exposure. And if they had a chronic illness like diabetes or hypertension, they would be out of control. Dr. Caroline Burnett-Garraway, thank you for the work you do and thank you for your time. Thank you. All out hostility and a deep disconnect, the new low reached in the relationship between two key Trump administration officials. That's next. Uh, we're back with the politics lead and new details about the all out hostility between two of President Trump's top officials, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor Ambassador John Bolton. This comes as the U.S. is involved in aiding the Bahamas after deadly Hurricane Dorian and Iran is ramping up nuclear development and Russia is flexing its military muscle in Europe and the trade war with China is causing issues and North Korea is regularly testing new missiles and on and on. As CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports for us, even amidst all these conflicts and international challenges, the president's top two advisors on these issues, Bolton and Pompeo, recently didn't speak for weeks. CNN has learned long-simmering tensions in the president's national security team have turned into all-out hostility. Three sources say National Security Advisor John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo rarely speak to each other outside formal meetings and recently went weeks without talking at all. I like watching it. I like seeing it. It's a big change from their old relationship when the two would meet with Vice President Mike Pence before going to the president on a foreign policy move. While they still see eye to eye on the issues, Trump sees them differently. Mike Pompeo, we have a uh, very similar thought process. I actually temper John, which is pretty amazing. 
The president claims he doesn't mind the chaos. I like conflict. I like having two people with different points of view. But aides say the breakdown has left communication between the White House and State Department to subordinates at a time when the U.S. is facing multiple foreign policy tests. They may not be speaking, but Bolton is keeping a close eye on the Secretary of State's job, while sources say Pompeo has his eye on an open Senate seat in Kansas. I'm flattered when people say Mike would be a good United States senator representing Kansas. And as the White House is trying to downplay concerns about the economy, the new August jobs report revealing that hiring slowed last month. But Trump seems to be more focused on being right than the latest jobs report. He's now on day six of insisting Alabama was in the path of Hurricane Dorian and is now suggesting reporters should apologize to him, claiming this nonsense has never happened to another president. Now, Jake, the thing about this breakdown in communication between Pompeo and Bolton is that they still agree on a lot of the issues at their core. What's different is the way they approach President Trump. Hmm. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, let's chew over all of this. Jen Psaki, let me start with you. As someone who served in both the State Department and the White House, how concerning is it if the National Security Advisor in the White House and the Secretary of State don't have a good working relationship? Well, in a normal White House, uh, the National Security Advisor is really the coordinator of the entire national security team. So they're not a person who would be negotiating deals typically or traveling a lot. Sometimes they travel a bit. Uh, but the breakdown is a, is a reflection of the dysfunction here, right? Um, so if Pompeo and uh, and uh, if they're not talking at all, if Bolton and Pompeo are not talking at all, it means they're not having kind of conversations after national security meetings. They're not having phone calls where they're saying, where do we go with this? What do you think of this crisis? That's a huge problem. Though reading this story, I think what, what struck out to me was the fact that the, the isolation of Bolton, because Pompeo clearly has an in to President Trump. I mean, we've seen that. Typically, the national security advisor is, is the most powerful in the sense that they have the ear of the president. They can walk into the Oval anytime. They know what they're thinking. They speak on their behalf. Mm -hmm. uh, that certainly was the case in the White House I worked in. Uh, this reflects his isolation, uh, and that was interesting to me. You worked in uh, the Bush senior Quail White House. What do you make of all this? I mean, uh, certainly the Reagan White House had some uh, competing uh, personalities. People didn't get along, especially with the First Lady at the time. Uh, but how significant is this for the country and for the stakes? I mean, usually it is about something, the dispute's about something real. So Weinberger and Schultz, Secretary of Defense and State under Reagan, had actual different views on some key issues, arms control and negotiations and other things. This seems to be entirely personal about who has more access to the president. Uh, they don't seem to actually differ that much on most issues. But the dysfunction is deep. I've talked to a few people who are, have been in or are close to people who are in the White House and in state and defense. Uh, and, I mean, it, the people are just throwing their arms up. There's no process. There's no, there are no interagency meetings. I mean, you can make fun of these things. They're overdone, probably, by those of us who have been in Washington a long time. You don't need to have quite as many of them as they sometimes have been in past administrations. But it is kind of important when you're dealing with Iran and Afghanistan and Russia and China and Venezuela, et cetera, to have some coherent policymaking and to be coordinating state and defense and CIA. And there's apparently none of that. I mean, I really think... Almost literally none of that is happening now. I, one buried in the story is that Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, has his own senior national security advisor. Because Mulvaney and Bolton don't get along. And so this guy who worked in the National Security Council, I guess, and, or I don't know if he ever worked at the NSC, but who has some Hill background in, in defense and foreign policy, is working for Mulvaney. So. And, and, uh, but this is, the president likes dysfunction. Uh, he wouldn't put it that way. He'd say he likes competing view, uh, viewpoints. 
But we saw this on the campaign. Yeah, he does. And I don't think he really cares that there's not a process or there aren't interagency meetings. I also don't think that we should be that surprised that John Bolton may not be getting along with people in the White House. I mean, we kind of knew that this is what was going to happen when they brought him in. So that in and of itself was not surprising. The president was warned about that when he was considering bringing him on, that he tends to, you know, rub people the wrong way. So I don't, I don't think that that's a shock. And I just don't think that this is the kind of thing that bothers the president. The things that bother him are when people are taking credit for his accomplishments or when people are telling him, you know, that you said Alabama was in the path of the storm and it wasn't really when they're challenging his sort of dominance yeah. over, over the narrative. But if he's like you guys, are all fighting amongst each other like fine go for it whoever wins out that's whose opinion you know like gets to be number one with the president although ultimately he'll do whatever he wants to that point there isn't there doesn't seem to be anybody challenging the president on that other than the media and the facts uh you were part of a team that that broke the fact that president trump is indeed the one who with his sharpie (laughs) pen tried to make it look as though the path of the hurricane at one point was projected to go right into alabama which obviously that was the worst you know, graphic portrayal I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, other people within the administration are fighting over Afghanistan and Iran and China. The president is obsessed over very minor slights, whether it's attacking his former aide, Anthony Scaramucci, or, you know, drawing Sharpie on, on a map to say the hurricane was actually going to Alabama uh, when it wasn't. The president is focused on a lot of these minor issues, and some of his aides are concerned that he's so focused and so obsessed with some of these issues that don't really matter at the end of the day. But for days on end, he gets r- riled up about media coverage and about things that are, are relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. And uh, while that's happening, that allows there to be all of this infighting within the administration over some of the major issues, because they know that when they finally get the president's attention, he can easily be swayed uh, uh, on things that are more important than the thing that he's focusing on at the moment. And, and Bill, I, I want to get your rea- I want to get a reaction because the Trump campaign today uh, is promoting a magic marker, a sharp, <laughs> sharpie of their own that you can buy from their website. As our fact checker Daniel Dale uh, put it, this seems to be a first. The Trump campaign selling memorabilia of its own dishonesty. Yeah, that's great. I think the Joe Walsh's campaign is selling a Sharpie with Don't Lie on it. So everyone's, uh, I hope Sharpie is doing well, I guess, out of this. You, Sharpie, they, yeah. I hope they owe you a dinner somewhere, you know, for publicizing the fact that this. You know, it's all kind of funny, except, I mean, we do act. American foreign policy is, is pretty important. And the president may think it's amusing to have all these people jostling around. But what do you do if you're a serious, you know, a country, either, a well, an ally or, I mean, it really is. It's really bad. Not to mention the fact that there's a whole peace deal with uh, the Taliban and the Afghan government that's coming down the pike, and we don't know what's in there or whether or not anybody in the White House is going to sign off. Everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about. Coming up, questions about the vice president's stay at a Trump property in Ireland. Far from over, as House Democrats are testing a new strategy to conduct more investigations and oversight of the Trump presidency. Stay with us. Democrats on the House Oversight and House Judiciary Committees today demanded that the White House release documents related to the decision by Vice President Pence to stay at President Trump's Ireland resort this week, more than 180 miles away from where Mike Pence's official meetings were being held. CNN's Sunland Serfati joins me now. And Sunland, what specific information Are Democrats looking for here? Well, Jake, the committees, they say they have grave concerns about all of this, and they are now demanding details and documents from the vice president's stay at the president's resort in Ireland. They want, for example, an itemized cost of Pence's trip, including a breakdown of security, transportation, and all of the lodging costs. The committees are also additionally now looking into the president's recent suggestion that his private Miami golf course could potentially host the G7 meeting next year. Um, All this, the committee says, raises serious concerns about the 
president potentially enriching himself, potentially in violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. The House Oversight Chairman Elijah Cummings saying in a Senate letter that was sent to the administration today, quote, the committee does not believe that U.S. taxpayer funds should be used to personally enrich President Trump, his families, and his companies. And the opening up of this new front, of course, is part of the House Democrats' new strategy to widen their investigation of President Trump, widen it out beyond just the Mueller report, investigate other aspects of President Trump where they see potential abuses of power and to potentially help them, of course, answer whether they will formally recommend articles of impeachment. This will be a big focus for the fall for Democrats, of course, with Congress Jake back in session next week. All right, Sandlin Sarfati, thanks so much. Uh, Jen Psaki, let me ask you, what what do you make of the Democrats uh, launching an investigation into this, the idea that the president is using his presidency to send taxpayer dollars essentially into his pockets through all the administration officials who spend a lot of money at his properties? Well, it's illegal. Uh, And I think in any other presidency, it would be a massive scandal. And I think the Democrats are trying to um, do their jobs and uh, look into uh, steps, abuses of power, abuses of resources, and that this is an example of that. Now, it seems in the grand scheme of all the things Trump has been accused of to be minor, but that doesn't mean it isn't problematic, it shouldn't be investigated. That's how I think the de- Democrats see it. Now, they also see it as a continuing effort to storytell and communicate with the public on the indiscretions and illegal activities, in their view, of Donald Trump. Uh, and so that's an ongoing effort. There have been more Democrats who have come out in favor of impeachment. It there are 134 total now. Right. It hasn't been. It's it's not the majority, as we know. Uh, but it's the majority of the majority. It's, it's the, majority the majority of the, of the majority. Yeah. The majority of majority. So Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, she is somebody who is watching every day and every week to see where her caucus is. Not just the majority of the majority, but where her vulnerable members are. And mm-hmm. I think that's where, where her, uh, her views and her actions could shift. And, and Tulu, uh, in addition to that, Democrats are now talking about holding hearings, looking at President Trump's role in those hush money payments uh, made to adult film star and director Stormy Daniels, whose real name is Stephanie Clifford. She tweeted, I have no fear of being under oath because I have been and will be honest. Bring it. Are Democrats nervous at all about having having Stormy Daniels testify in the House and, and the circus that theoretically could become? I don't think so. I think they want to paint a picture of the circus that President Trump has brought to the White House and the fact that not only did the Southern District of New York say that he was individual one, but they actually put someone in prison for what happened with Stormy Daniels. They put Michael Cohen behind bars for these illegal hush money payments. And the fact that the president was implicated in, uh, in, in that filing means that the Democrats want to show the American public that, you know, this is a witness that they can bring before the Congress without having to fight in court like they have with all the other people who were White House officials or administration officials who the, the president said, we're not going to let these people testify. These folks in this situation will be able to be brought before the American people. And beyond the legal part, the president of the United States paid off a porn star. I mean, that is good for the Democrats to show the public. So, you know, that's the. I guess the question that I hear from some some Democratic uh, uh, consultants is that people already knew that that's the kind of person Donald Trump was when when he was elected. 
I think that's true. They did know that that was the kind of person he was. I think we're in a little bit of a different climate. Uh, Donald Trump was sort of elected before we went through this whole Me Too reckoning. And so I actually don't know if that is going to make a difference at all in the next election, if people are really going to care about that. But I can see why Democrats think it's worth rolling the dice and going forward with this, because it is the only crime that the president was directly implicated in Mm by prosecutors in court. And if you were going to try to make a case for impeachment or for bad behavior or whatever it is that Democrats are deciding they're going to prosecute, that's a pretty clear road to follow. Bill, I want to ask you about something else that's going on, which is right now, uh, even as there are at least three individuals planning on challenging uh, President Trump uh, in the Republican primary, uh, including Weld and I think Sanford and and, uh, Joe Walsh, um, Republican officials in multiple states are actually moving to get rid of their state's primaries. Now, it's happened before in South Carolina, uh, but this is much more widespread. Jen said that uh, in any other presidency, it would be a massive scandal talking about the travel. And that's true of so many things. I think that should be put over. I don't know what, you <laughs> know, in any other presidency. But in any other presidency, in any other party, it would be a massive scandal to take a bunch of primaries that have been going on a long time in caucuses and suddenly decide, okay, we don't need to have a primary. When there, is a, when there are people challenging the president, it's one thing yeah. to cancel the primary. The state parties in some places pay for the primary, not the state government, and they don't want to pay a little if there's no challenger, literally, right. as with Reagan in 84, George W. Bush in 2004. Or with Obama in 2012. Yeah. Fine, cancel the primary. But there are two already, three, there might be more. Uh, and they are canceling it. It does suggest to me that they're a little nervous about the total vote that Walsh and Weld and Sanford and maybe others could get. And it is a reflection just of Trump's Trump is authoritarian. And now the whole party's behaving mm-hmm. in an authoritarian way. Trumpism corrupts. And now the Republican Party has been corrupted. Just a reminder that he's a Republican. <laughs> it was money meant to build a new middle school for military families. Now that money is going to instead pay for part of the border wall. We're going to take a look at the real world impact of Mexico not paying for the wall. Stay with us. In our national lead now, a military community in Kentucky is hurting after the Pentagon decided, after being told to do so by President Trump, to redirect money to build a middle school. Funds allocated by the Congress, originally approved by the Pentagon, to pay for a small section of the border wall. Now Fort Campbell will not get the school it desperately needs, and kids will be stuck in an old and overcrowded building. These are military children. These are military families. They put their lives on the line, and they deserve the best. I think it's crap. Um, The funding was raised for the kids. It should be spent for the kids. The school joins 127 projects, all taking a hit to raise $3.6 billion to build 175 miles to deliver on the president's biggest campaign promise, the border wall, a promise he's not been able to solve by working with Congress. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She sits on the House Armed Services Committee. She held a senior position at the Pentagon uh, in her previous life. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, spokesman, said he's committed to protecting the funding for that middle school, adding, quote, "Uh, we would not be in this situation if Democrats were serious about protecting our homeland and worked with us to provide the funding needed to secure our borders. Uh, McConnell blaming this on Democrats Uh, What's your response? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I think there's sort of two issues going on right now. There's one, just the straight removal of the money from the Pentagon budget and all the the families and the communities that are going to suffer because of that. 
But then there's sort of the bigger strategic issue of the politicizing of the military. Um, the, the Pentagon has been a place that has enjoyed bipartisan support. We want to believe that everything they're asking for, all the billions of dollars that they're asking for, are for the right reasons. And this just brings the Pentagon into the political conversation in a way that is not good for them and not good for us as a country. Um, listen, I'm on the Armed Services Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. I am ready to have the conversation about border security. Um, frankly, as a CIA officer, I worked my entire life to preserve the homeland from attack. So there's plenty of us who want to have that conversation. I just think that this way of doing it um, just kills a couple of longstanding principles that we want for our military, a bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. So not to defend this move, but haven't Democratic leaders in Congress basically said to President Trump, we're not going to give you any money for your border wall no matter what? I mean, hasn't it been a non-starter with Speaker, Speaker Pelosi? So I think, you know, I, I think the wall, I don't know that there's anyone, including the president, who still talks about a wall from sea to shining sea. I think that most people think we're talking about security at the border, fencing, barriers. And I personally don't have a problem with those things. I don't think the, the speaker has a problem with real border security, but it has to be focused on the actual threats. And while I support doing more where we need it, most people right now are coming through the ports of entry. They're not sneaking over. They're coming right through our borders. And we have organizations that are completely overwhelmed by that. So let's focus on what the real concerns are and address that and pay for that instead of just like over and over with the campaign promise. Colorado Republican Congressman uh, Doug Lamborn's district will be directly impacted as well. He says, quote, it is unfortunate that it has come to this, but the primary job of the commander in chief and purpose of our military is to guarantee our national sovereignty, unquote. Uh, what do you make of that argument? I mean, again, I don't have a problem with the conversation. It's just this idea that the president is redefining his relationship with Congress and with the military in a way that is just breaks with tradition of how any president of any party has done it. The Congress allocates money um, that's in the Constitution. So the president's continual sort of ignoring of those division of powers, to me, is the more dangerous piece of this. It's not one specific base, one specific community. It's the precedent it sets. So I understand we all want to have a security conversation, but let's have it in the appropriate place, not take it from our military. What's your response to the moms that you just heard uh, in, the, in, as in, the, in the introduction uh, who are saying, basically, one of them said, this is crap, the idea that our kids are going to suffer that school, uh, our understanding is that sometimes in one classroom at one time, there will be multiple classes because it's so overcrowded. Uh, and this is the result of this order. I mean, listen, my husband was 30 years in the military. He spent many years of his life on Fort Campbell. My stepdaughter's in the military and just left Fort Campbell. So um, this one is just very personal. And the schools are one thing, but there's a lot of facilities, including at places like Tyndall and Lejeune, where we've had devastating weather-related problems, where the, the communities need these things. And it just I just don't believe in blaming and punishing those folks for the political conversation to continue for the president. And, you know, you heard it. The, the, I couldn't have said it any more clearly than those moms. So, But you think that President Trump is specifically directly hurting military families for the sake of politics? Well, I mean, I think the, the, he's taking his money for a political promise from people who have done the right thing, served their country. Um, their, their projects have been in line. And the military specifically looked at those needs and asked the Congress for that money. And we gave it. And we gave it. 
Um, so I think they're right to be frustrated. Why is it coming out of their school or their rehabilitation project or their cyber center um, and not from where it belongs, which is an honest, honest to God, homeland security conversation? Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks. Coming up, frightening new information about where the Odessa, Texas shooter obtained his firearm and what that seller might have been doing against the law. Stay with us. In our national lead, law enforcement sources are telling CNN that investigators in the Texas mass shooting have found some evidence that they believe shows the alleged seller of the firearm used in the crime was manufacturing firearms himself. Seven people were murdered in the Odessa, Texas shooting spree. Twenty-five others were wounded. I want to bring in former FBI intelligence analyst Phil Mudd, as well as CNN's Evan Perez. And Evan, tell us what you're learning. Well, Jake, what this uh, alleged seller of the, of the firearm was doing is apparently manufacturing firearms uh, for resale. Now, you're allowed to buy stuff and make firearms at home. What you're not allowed to do is, is essentially become a, an unlicensed uh, dealer of firearms, manufacturer of firearms. And so that's what investigators are focusing on now. They're trying to see whether the evidence that they found in the searches that they did earlier this week indicates a pattern that this person was uh, buying uh, parts of guns in, at home and making it into more lethal weapons, uh, doing it in, in a pattern whereby he was essentially uh, acting as a, as a dealer, not just as a hobbyist. And if they can then bring a case against him, uh, they're going to bring some federal charges against him because, again, you, you're supposed to take, take out a license with the ATF in order to do some of these things. Quickly, though, are hobbyists, are these individuals who manufacture, are they manufacture their own guns, are they allowed to sell them? Yeah, I mean, if you make something at home and okay. you, they later want to put it on Craigslist or whatever, you are allowed to do that. Again, you're not allowed to do it as a business. I got it. Okay. Uh, Phil, let me bring you in here. How concerning is it for law enforcement that people can manufacture guns in their homes and sell them without the authorities even knowing it? Well, you've seen this all the time on shows like your show, Jake. That is, you see a SWAT team go into a house in media coverage of, uh, of an investigation in the United States, and you look on media coverage and you say, why are those guys dressed in a SWAT outfit when they're executing an indictment on a house? Drug house, gang house, even a domestic dispute. If you've got situations like this where people are selling weapons that are altered to make them uh, uh, semi-automatic, like we might have seen in this case, how the heck does somebody who's executing a, no a raid know what's in the house? You can search the owner's background to determine what licenses they have, but if they've got an altered weapon that allows them to engage you with a semi-automatic uh, uh, arm, how the heck do you decide I'm going to go in soft if you think that might be in the house? This is really tough. And Phil, what do your former colleagues in the FBI think about the ability of gun buyers to avoid background checks by going through private sales. Well, let's do a quick contrast. You go into a raid situation, you're facing a 22 rifle. You go into a raid situation, you're facing a semiotic weapon that's unlicensed. If you're going into the second situation, you're multiplying risk, which unlike almost every prof profession in America, multiplying risk in state, local, federal law enforcement means death. Let's cut to the, ch to the chase, Jake. The fact of political divides on automatic weapons in Washington means more law enforcement will die because they've got to face people who don't have a 22. They've got an AR-15. That's the facts, Jake. 
And, and look, one of, one of the complications here is that it, the job of law enforcement, which is to protect public safety, is made harder. Right now, this uh, alleged seller would be in jail right now, Jake, facing charges for not doing a background check if there was a universal background check law. They, he, he, instead, what the, uh, the ATF is having to do and prosecutors are having to do is try to figure out a way to use the patchwork of existing laws to try to bring charges here. And so that's what I, I think you're hearing from law enforcement f- officials who've been pushing for this. Even Bill Barr, the attorney general, General is telling the president, look, we think that universal background check is not such a bad thing to do. The problem is, obviously, there's uh, people inside the White House who don't want this to happen. And of course, you know, the NRA and uh, and other forces on Capitol Hill who are opposed to it. And the overwhelming majority of the American people, according to poll after poll, supports universal background checks. Evan Perez, Philmont, thanks so much. Remember that Jeep that ended up in the ocean during Hurricane Dorian? Well, we finally learned how it got there. That's next. It's the Jeep that took the Internet and the world of TV news by storm, abandoned in Myrtle Beach as Hurricane Dorian swept in. But now we know how it ended up there. The owner telling our CNN affiliate WMBF that he lent his Jeep to his cousin who wanted to get a video of the sunrise before the storm, but obviously ended up getting stuck instead. The SUV was towed off the beach earlier today. The owner also says he didn't even know what happened until police showed up at his door. I'm guessing, just guessing now, that that's the last time this gentleman lends his Jeep to his cousin. Be sure to tune in to State of the Union this Sunday morning. My guest, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Democratic presidential candidate Senator Amy Klobuchar, and former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show with the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.